Good morning, Grid Connections listeners, and welcome back to another episode. In case you may have not listened to this before, Grid Connections podcast is where we explore the innovations and minds shaping the future of energy, transportation, and sustainability. Today, we're excited to have a very special guest, Yakov Berenstein, the Director of Partnerships at Gridweave a pioneering company at the forefront of integrating renewable energy into our everyday lives. In this episode, Yakov will share insights into how Gridweave is transforming the energy landscape through strategic partnerships and cutting-edge technology. We'll dive into the challenges and opportunities of creating a more sustainable and efficient grid while tying the needs of electric vehicles to a smart and much more efficient way of making clean transportation possible the impact of digitalization on energy consumption, and what the future holds for renewable energy integration. But first, while I was recording this episode yesterday, Yakov mentioned there would be a big announcement with an auto OEM, and so I'm excited that I can be one of the first to share the press release with you now. WeaveGrid and Toyota is announcing a partnership that empowers Toyota drivers to save money while charging their vehicles at home and to contribute to a cleaner, more resilient electric grid. In 2023, Toyota sold over 54,000 plug-in electric cars in the U.S., including 14,715 all-electric and almost 40,000 plug-in hybrids. The WeaveGrid and Toyota partnership leverages WeaveGrid's intelligent software platform in concert with the telematic systems on Toyota's electric vehicles to provide actionable EV load management capabilities to the country's largest electric utilities, as well as allowing Toyota EV drivers to save money on their utility bill. So why is this important, you may be asking. Partnerships like these help the adoption of EVs by allowing drivers to save money while charging their vehicle. This partnership also helps utilities work closely with automakers to manage the load on the grid, which we'll be discussing quite a bit today. So I'm really excited to share this with you, along with just some of the general in, uh, perspectives that Yakov was able to share around some of the challenges and misperceptions that his company has seen from both the utility and the automaker side, and in some of the ways that their technology addresses those. So whether you're a professional in the energy sector, a technology enthusiast, we're so passionate about sustainability, this conversation promises to be a very valuable perspective on how we can collectively move forward towards a much greener and more efficient future. And if you find today's discussion as enlightening as we do, we have a small but impactful request. Please share the episode with at least one other listener you think would enjoy it. Spreading the word helps us connect with more like-minded individuals and really helps to grow this podcast and what we can do for our listeners such as yourselves. So let's see how Gridweave is connecting the dots on the energy grid today with their director of partnerships, Yadkov Berenstein. With that, enjoy. Thanks, Jason. I'm the director of automotive and charging partnerships for a company called WeaveGrid. Uh, we're about an 85-person company out of San Francisco and while our mission kind of uh, in the biggest picture is to help decarbonize transportation, what we specifically do is uh, we've created a software platform that sits between the electric utilities on which people are now charging their uh, many new EVs. And uh, on the other hand, on the other side, the automakers and some of the charging hardware providers uh, whose data and controls are enabling us to uh, deliver a new set of uh, grid services that are of value to the utilities, to the automakers, to the charging providers, and of course, the the drivers who sit in the middle of it all. And I, I'm kind of curious, how did you get involved with this? How did you get connected to electric vehicles? Was this purely kind of a job opportunity? Was it just an interest in the space? Yeah, um, it's sort of a, you know, one of those circuitous stories where in, in retrospect, it's uh, combination of right right place, right time, right right friends, I guess. Um, I am admittedly not a car guy per se, uh, but I am sort of a generalist who's you know, pretty much my whole career has been the intersection of environmental sustainability, clean technology, and business. And so uh, you know, previous gigs have been around consulting to corporates on um, new innovations and technologies for utilities in the industrial sector. Um, I helped a uh, large utility pour a bunch of money into residential solar back in the day. 
hopped over to a uh, fleet telematics oriented company out of grad school, and then sort of, you know, right place, right time with uh, the right connections, found out about this 10 person company, peak COVID pandemic, uh, spring 2020, and thought to myself, well, you know, the world's uh, going to hell in handbaskets. Why not join a 10 person startup? What's the worst that can happen? Um, lo and behold, uh, almost four years later, still, still enjoying it. Companies grown uh, eight or nine X in, in sort of headcounts, uh, have raised $50 million, and um, I've gotten to play a few different roles and have enjoyed every day of it so far. That's great. And uh, I, I think this is a great thing to kind of be discussing because even though lately I feel like our focus really has been around electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging, the name of the podcast is Grid Connection. So there is obviously a large focus on how this ties to grid, how it kind of helps to enable better use of cleaner energy to be then kind of being the background uh, with this transportation uh, revolution. And so that, that was part of the reason I was excited to be on, uh, have you on today. And I realize even though uh, you're like you're saying, your background might not be not, I think we're going to be talking a lot of these different areas that uh, I know mm -hmm. I will be and quite a few of the listeners will be interested in. So let's let's kind of jump into it then with uh, partnerships at WeaveGrid. Where do companies kind of come to interact with you most commonly? Is it as an EV manufacturer, is it a utility, or, or what does that look like? Yeah, so it's um, it's interesting. We've really created this um, two sided platform uh, that's growing on both sides. One is the electric utilities; the other is the car companies and the charger companies. Our initial client base has been the electric utilities. <clears throat> so the U.S. super fragmented in its uh, electric utilities. There's about three thousand of them. Uh, many of those are are tiny co-ops. So we'll put them. what's happening with them is they're seeing EV adoption take off. Of course, it's very clustered and um, inconsistent from state to state, geography to geography. Um, but this is really starting to strain their uh, local electric distribution grids in particular. And so they're looking to solutions like ours to help them uh, optimize the charging loads on those networks. And then on the flip side, uh, the way we optimize those uh, charging loads on the networks is we tap into uh, the data and controls that are streaming either from the EVs themselves. So when you think sort of software-defined vehicle, EV telematics, um, there's a lot of buzzwords, but we are very much tapping into kind of like the real deal um, data and controls on vehicles. We're also tapping into that with um, with the EVSC, the, uh, mm. the silly acronym on yeah. uh, what, which really just means chargers. And so we're able to provide sort of this uh, agnostic platform to utilities where they can tap into this range of um, devices and, and vehicles for those grid services. But then those automakers uh, and charging companies are also coming to us and saying, okay, so WeaveGrid helps connect uh, our vehicles, our drivers to the grid in this sort of new participatory fashion. Um, we want to have grid interactive vehicles as well. We want to get into the sort of eventual, you know, bi-directional game of, of backup power and export to the grid, help us figure out the crawl, walk, run to get there. And so uh, kind of where my role has kind of even shifted a little bit in the last 18 months is going from, hey, automaker, do you want to um, work with us to uh, sort of support these utility programs to, hey, it sounds like you actually want to go bigger, you actually want to uh, not do this as like a one-off here and there with a couple of utilities, but you really want the future of your electric vehicles to be grid interactive. Like WeaveGrid's built up uh, a sort of know-how and capability to, to help you design for that. And so now we're um, on one side, this utility software, on the other side, this sort of uh, OEM facing software and almost technical advisory kind of service. Yeah, that's really interesting because one of the things I think we've discussed with quite a few guests lately is over, I would say definitely just over the course of 2023, but especially in the last six months, so many of these technologies that have been hyped up around whether it was autonomy or especially kind of uh, vehicle to grid, there's definitely been a lot of kind of taking some steps back and maybe it's reality and obviously the markets and a, bit, a lot of different changes that have kind of impacted uh, the announcements versus the reality. Mm -hmm. And there are still quite a few players that are serious about it and do see the long-term need. And that is just where it seems like a lot of things are going. But I, I would be kind of curious if you could just walk us through 
what does the crawl, walk, run approach for that kind of transition for vehicle to grid and the adoption of these utilities to implement that? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that. And I'll first caveat that, um, you know, WeaveGrid today is very centrally focused on the home charging experience for consumers. That is, of course, uh, one segment. There are things like uh, Explorations, uh, other companies, and a little bit of, uh, of us as well doing things like depot charging for heavy-duty vehicles. Totally different paradigm of charging needs and impacts on the grid. So for the sake of like focusing this conversation a little bit, I'll touch on sort of what's happening in that consumer comes home, you know, with their first EV, wants to know how to charge in their garage or in their parking spot, and the utility needs to needs to do something about that. The the sort of initial crawl in a lot of cases has been utilities just better understanding um, where that charging is happening, where it's mm-hmm. clustering, um, what kind of peak loads are being hit at that sort of granular level down to the you know, address, but then also aggregated up to uh, a service transformer on the grid or a feeder or a zip code. So just starting to understand those hotspots, that's kind of like the crawl. And the way we can do that is just by using telemetry on vehicles and devices to understand that aggregated picture and show a utility, hey, here are where your hotspots are. You can now plug that into um, sort of forecasting and operational uh, management tools that you have. The next level is then, okay, so we know where uh, we're starting to get these hotspots. We know you know, we being either WeaveGrid or the utility or both uh, together know, hey, you know, we have a pretty uh, outdated hardware, uh, electrical hardware out in that hotspot. How do we manage around that? Um, the first level is sort of uh, behavioral uh, um, nudges and, and points of engagement to drivers. Utilities typically do that through rates, right? You set a time of use rate that says, hey, please charge after 9 p.m. Um, off peak window. You'll, you'll save some money. And that that goes a pretty good distance to sort of offset those um, peak loads and other constraints. But of course, you also get the secondary effects like, all right, you told everyone to start charging at 9 p.m. Guess what? Everyone's charging at 9 p.m. now. Uh, The power plants are fine now. We're not going to run out of power. But the local grid at the, you know, kind of the, again, the the transformer at the end of your cul-de-sac, now that that uh, neighborhood has has, uh, seven EVs in it, that's where you start to get that. hyperlocal strain. And so the next step up is um, actually actively manage charging. So we uh, get opt-in and consents from the driver um, and design a program with utilities such that they can actually automate the charging uh, on behalf of the driver. So, you, so it's a very sort of set it and forget it kind of mentality. You plug in at night, the charging might not start right away. Interesting. Uh, it's designed to make sure that you, the driver, get the charge you need that you specified by the time you wake up and use your car in the morning. Um, but it's co-optimized with the local grid constraints, the bulk sort of um, utility system constraints, as well as um, you know, kind of other drivers um, in your uh, sort of respected uh, region of aggregation. There's sort of additional layers of complexity here, and then for sure, sort of the, yeah, the, the the pinnacle is really around solving for the for the distribution challenge, and that's where we have um, some patented IP on um, algorithms that solve for that um, really really nuanced um, electric distribution challenge relative to EVs, and so. That's kind of the the North Star, and that's where uh, our most progressive and innovative utility clients are are starting to push things. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, use case, and that kind of makes sense. Just, I guess, to use a hypothetical, if you have 10 different people in a cul-de-sac who are charging their EVs, and maybe one's like a really efficient, small, like a Tesla Model 3 or something, and then someone has like a Hummer EV that's going to take all night to charge, your system can kind of actively move around which does does it get to that level i mean when you talk about complexity of like where the car needs to be and the battery pack and all sorts of different kind of variables like that uh short answer yes um, interesting it's, it's it's moving you know in a more sophisticated direction over time one thing that's um interesting and not yet uh sort of fully fleshed out in the sort of uh utility kind of program paradigms or regulations is uh it, what what is the sort of you know there's some like philosophical questions that uh, end up being debated through sort of the 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 legal happenings of public utility commissions and so on but it's like okay so to your point there's a small little EV and there's a big big EV does big EV 
have preference over the small EV because they need more charge in terms of who charges first. Um, what about when you go bi-directional? Um, right. Clearly, the big, the big, the big EV has uh, more potential to feed power back to the grid. Should they be compensated more by the utility in, the, in a bi-directional paradigm, or is that then inequitable because you're just rewarding the person that can afford the bigger car? These are questions that have not yet been fully settled yet. Even like <laughs> um, they've been addressed in, in some forums, but we're, we're far from a, a full picture as to what that's going to look like in the next 10 years. Yeah, that, that is an interesting point, but I, I could also see those interests being very, uh, I think with a lot of the stuff we're talking about regionally focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm kind of curious when you talk about the crawl walk run approach, a lot of the stuff you talked about in the crawl phase seems like a big part it's data driven but a big part is that education piece and do you find that um, if you can share this is that education being seeked out by the utility like coming to you to ask those questions or is it a pretty big like you have to reach out to them show that this is the solution you're solving for and this is kind of the data and the demand from your uh, user base or uh, energy providers to actually go down the path and make those changes or to to make the question even longer, is that also very regionally based? Yeah. I I wish I had, you know, I I think, I think the answer that a lot of folks uh, expect in um, to that question is like, Oh, it's all about California first and everyone else later. That's actually not how we've seen it play out per se. Um, Certainly. I remember like four years ago, some of our sort of like business development conversations with utilities with someone in uh, Idaho or Ohio is a little bit like, hey, don't you want this to track where EV hotspots are happening? And they're like, I can't imagine there's EV hotspots. Like I saw my first, you know, Tesla right. uh, three months ago and I haven't seen one since. Um, so th- there definitely were those types of conversations. Those are now starting to evolve where those utilities are coming to us and saying, oh, yep, now that we have a little bit more mass adoption, um, we're interested in this problem. Of course, um, within a given utility, um, you know, like a, a hypothetical utility in like the Midwest, um, there might be sort of a central mid-sized city to that utility. And then a lot of suburban or, or mostly rural, um, sort of outskirts. And of course, like it's that, it's that like one or two suburbs, uh, right. to that mid-sized city where all the EVs are. And while they don't represent the kind of growth you see in California, they do represent the same like, oops, uh, the local <laughs> the local grid uh, was not designed for this home or, or this cul-de-sac, this neighborhood to, to have this many EVs. Um, I'll say, yeah, the other interesting thing is, of course, um, there is uh, sort of there's variability by policy developments um, at a state by state level. The public utility commissions are all sort of run at the state level. So you get this, um, uh, yeah, just kind of variability across the country. But um, again, going back to like the the question you didn't ask of like, did the, the, is this all about California? Actually, like our flagship uh, utility client has been Baltimore Gas and Electric in Maryland. Hmm. Um, they The combination of, um, I think, innovative policy at the state level and focus on transportation electrification uh, with the local demographics, the, the the ages and the incomes and the population types that are most likely to buy EVs. Like we're all kind of concentrated there uh, in the last three or four years. And we've had this great utility partner with whom we started on relatively basic um, implementations. And then every step of the way, they've been this great partner of, okay, what's next? Like we've done this thing with Weavered for a year on sort of passive engagement of drivers. We now have a bunch more EVs than when we started. What do we do next? Okay, let's go like really active managed charging. Okay, 12 months go by, 18 months go by. What's next? We have a ton more EVs than 18 months ago and we've gotten into increasingly sophisticated um, uh, deployments with them. So that's been just like a great paradigm for uh, for us to copy in, in other utilities since then. For sure. And I, I'm kind of curious, can you share when you're talking about that crawl, walk, run approach? I've, I've definitely worked with some clients where they're really fun, but they are pushing kind of the limits of what the technology is able to do. And then that fortunately does unlock greater products that you can kind of then obviously productize further and 
sell to other clients, but can you share kind of any of the maybe upcoming products that you're excited for in this year that WeaveGrid is working on that's kind of being pushed in that direction? Oh, good question. What can I share? Um, well, uh, I can answer it from maybe two fronts. One is the sort of depth of utility sophistication, right? So I talked about um, our, our sort of uh, real sort of North Star focus on the distribution system and some of the patented IP we have. Um, we're just continuing to have more uh, both uh, pilot and full-scale deployments of that technology coming up uh, with some of our utility partners. We, you know, the whole world is now looking at um, the whole world. The, the whole industry is, is starting to look more of that bi-directional capability. Um, there, as far as I know, for, that res- for the residential space, there is effectively nowhere in the country that is actually uh, compensating drivers at any scale to export, but there are a number of um, pilots and grant opportunities, um, a couple of which are still in the running, a few of which that we've already been selected for that um, will start to go into deployments closer to mid this year. So we're excited for that. The other piece, um, and really kind of the focus of of my specific role is the types of, uh, again, automotive and charging partners that we're we're bringing into the fold. We've been quietly, I'll say, working with a couple of the largest automakers uh, in the world. They, you know, unlike utilities who aren't competitive with with one another, the automakers are uh, pretty conservative in letting us talk about them. But I believe uh, as soon as tomorrow, we're issuing a press release about some of the work we've been doing with one of the large automakers. Um, So that's pretty exciting. And that's going to be kind of, I think, a continuous drip going forward of of some of the partners that we've been able to to bring on board. And you know, so one thing that I sort of love about WeaveGrid is, um, well, the the love and the love and hate. The the automakers are conservative in letting us announce things, um, but once we do, it's because we've already been working with them for six, twelve, eighteen months or more, and have sort of gained their trust as a um, sort of a thought partner and an advisor. So once once they're ready to to announce our our partnership, that means we're already pretty lo- locked in and. Um, yeah, more more great things to come over the coming months. Yeah, and that does kind of make sense just when you look at also the uh, product roadmap and kind of product development for a lot of cars, especially electric vehicles. And there's really only a few currently available to the market that actually even offer uh, kind of a vehicle to grid system. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that kind of makes sense that the interest and as well as the announcements would probably be waiting on either new cars or once some of these even. Uh, early versions of the uh, power sharing technology or vehicle to grid technologies become more, uh, should I say, tested <laughs> uh, yep. and, and even in the public. So I'm kind of curious, though, with what are can you share maybe some of the misperceptions that an auto like a, an automaker would have about the need for offering vehicle to grid or any kind of um, just even general pushback? You usually see them may be well intended by the automaker, but is a, mer- a misperception about the reality. Yeah. I mean, I'd say um, it's like uh, probably two themes come to mind. Um, one is kind of that leap to the bi-directional side, right? Like it, it's, it generates a lot of buzz, um, has some really interesting applications in the future. Uh, but I think a few automakers have sort of accidentally st- taken a step too far when they've come out with announcements like bi-directional capable vehicle, you can power your, you know, your home and um, sell electricity back to the grid and frankly, you know, cut the big bad utility out of the picture and make money. And you're like, well, first of all, it doesn't really make sense because to get the electricity in your car, you must have purchased it from the utility. Right. So it's not like you're really going off grid, but then also it turns out um, there's some really, um, I'd say, you know, onerous, sticky um, requirements for things like electrical interconnection. So if you're actually going to be sort of a quote unquote power generator um, feeding electricity back into the grid, there's some very stringent um, sort of electrical engineering standards and permitting standards that you have to uh, complete. And I think some of the automakers kind of discovered, oh, telling our, you know, customers that they can just like buy this and do this kind of missed the mark on actually the the, the steps involved. Um, and so all, all that is to say, I think, you know, going back to the 
the crawl walk run, I think the there's been the perception of, okay, like we got to get into the V2G game and we're sort of here to say like, actually there's value to be generated uh, in what, you know, has been kind of colloquially called V1G, just one directional yeah. management, which is, you know, our, our types of programs on whether it's behavioral or actively pushing charge schedules um, optimized to the given vehicle, you can do a lot and gain a lot of the grid value um, not by exporting power, but just by managing how it's uh, consumed in the first place. Um, I think sort of, yeah, the the sort of other related theme or or misperception, I think, is I think some uh, not going to ba- bad mouth any OEMs here who are all my friends and prospective partners, but um, a little bit of misconception they might have had about how to interface with the utility grid. Yeah, there were there were pilots in this space as early as ten years ago. Um, and some automakers did them uh, directly with utilities, and that's that's great. That was very like innovative for the time. And um, now that we're in this sort of scale up era, I don't believe that a give a given automaker is going to have sort of the the time or the um, uh, in house capabilities to run a fully scaled EV program with a given utility, let alone all 3000 in the country. So right. I do think this is like a many to many problem that a platform provider, you know, I'm biased here because we're the platform provider, but yeah. this is where I think um, this is why services and software platforms like, like us exist. It's like, Hey, Oh yeah. Do you want to hire a hundred people to do this yourself? Uh, maybe, but Utilities don't want the single automaker solution. They also want the agnostic platform. So um, that's where I think we could sort of bring scale um, to both sides of the equation. Well, that that does make a lot of sense. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about with just uh, not even the pullback from some automakers in the technologies that they were more bullish about, but just kind of reality setting in as far as what that will actually take to execute upon that. And I, I think the V2G is one of those big ones that really did sound really great in concept and still obviously longer term will uh, get there. But I, I know there were just a lot of people that went in and bought cars because they knew they could do that, whether they had a cabin or something else that they wanted to kind of make their uh, house more off grid, mm-hmm. only to realize that, yeah, it might be $12,000 or so in panel upgrades because they have an older home or all these kind of other uh, well-intended but unforeseen costs that kind of go into that. And, it, and in a lot of ways, it's no different than if you do install like a diesel generator, you have to do a lot of this stuff anyway too. Because yep. uh, in a way that's really, at least how the grid kind of sees it, is that sort of uh, new area of power kind of coming on to the grid and having how to manage that and avoid eyeliding issues that can happen. So that's really fascinating to hear those misperceptions from the automaker side. Are there any from the utility side that you can share? Um, yeah, I'll say um, er- earlier in my role at WeaveGrid, I did um, interface with the utilities a lot more and not not as much recently as I spend more time with the automakers. But I will say um, one thing, I think, or one, I don't know if it's like a misconception or just like a lack of awareness maybe that uh, I perceive from the utilities is there's sort of this underlying belief that the data that's being produced by the vehicles is um, somehow readily available and should be, I don't know, free and standardized to you know the consumption of uh, whatever purpose the, the utility might have. And I think, and I don't think this is something that utilities um, sort of just decided or individuals working for utilities kind of decided on their own, it's that competitors that I don't, you know, I don't know if you used Napster in its two-year existence um, in your teenage years, like I did. But there's there's an interest, very interesting analog happening now to where, like, yeah, Napster, you can download all this music, and as far as you can tell, it was. What's the difference between uh, you know bits and bytes um, packaged in your MP3 versus the bits and bytes that came off the properly copyrighted CD if they sound the same? And so there's companies in our space today that are, um, you know, effectively ripping off the the data from from the EVs and sort of the very Napster, LimeWire, whatever uh, service analogy you might use from the the music pre music streaming era. Um, and so utilities have come to believe that like, oh, all this data is readily available, and I could get it for close to to free through a middleman that sort of scrapes this data from the OEMs. Um, the OEMs are mad. 
Um, they're <laughs> kind of like the yeah, yeah. And you know, as you may again, I'll, I'll keep to sort of maybe beating the Napster uh, horse to death here, but eventually the Recording Industry Association of America, uh, with all their lobbying and political power, um, went to, I don't know, it didn't get to the Supreme Court, but it got pretty high against Napster. And what are we seeing today? Well, uh, one of the large international automakers is suing one of those um, sort of data scraping providers. And at the same time, our... uh, some of our utility friends that maybe previously said, oh, you know, like we're not really looking for the highest end solution here. We're looking for just like the minimum viable product that gets me all the automakers data. They're kind of getting what they paid for and getting their, their wrists slapped by regulators. Now the public utility commission regulators who are saying like, Hey, either this data is being blocked um, or it's of low quality. It's not actually enabling, um, the sort of services that you, the utility said you were getting from uh, the vendors you've contracted with. And so we've it's kind of been in the behind the scenes here or not behind the scenes, but a little bit uh, in the background saying like, Hey, we told you this was going to be a slow and steady wins the race. Um, so, you know, again, who's uh, who's winning the streaming music streaming capabilities. Now it's the iTunes and Spotify's of the world who, whether you like them or not, did it the sort of legally sound and, partnered away with all the music labels. That's kind of what what we're doing. We're not trying to be the sketchy Silicon Valley startup that uh, causes a blackout when you when you hack into to all the cars. We're we're doing this with with cybersecurity in mind, uh, sort of legal and technical uh, contracts in mind and uh, trying to do the right thing here. <laughs> I will say I'm not sure. There's there's a few standards out there for various uh, components of the overall kind of end-to-end communications chain, um, like ISO 15118 about communication of, of sort of vehicle and charger data between one another. I'm not sure how they're going to shake out in practice uh, because, yeah, something I've kind of seen um, over my couple of years in, in this space is there's a few really smart academic folks who are... Um, Again, like I, I, I don't mean that in any kind of um, bad way. I mean that in a very genuine way. They're very smart people, but their academic nature leads them to focus in on like the standards and solve so hard for the standards that they don't solve for just like getting stuff done. And so what ends up happening is like in our case, um, we work with a lot of um, like custom API developments uh, between us and our partners uh, instead of through standards that may or may not exist yet or cover the full picture you know three years goes by the the sort of academics publish publish an update of like version 3.7 of the standard by the time they've done that like the sort of more practical approach of just getting stuff done via custom apis has taken hold and um is it good or bad for the industry if there's more custom apis versus standards or custom you know communications protocols versus standards We'll see how it shakes out. Where do you gaps right now in the electric vehicle and the electric vehicle charging space? And are any of those gaps areas that WeaveGrid is really focused on really filling currently? Oh, man. Um, a lot of gaps. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think as you spoke about on your, your last episode with John Volker about sort of the uh, IONA charging network, things like that are going to continue to uh, uh, fill some of those uh, gaps in uh, both real charging needs and also driver perception. I think one that has been a little bit of outside of our purview, but we're starting to touch a little bit is uh, the dealership, right? Um, uh, it's it's really funny seeing uh, the mix of reactions we get from our uh, utility clients or automotive partners when we mention the need to to touch the dealerships. Some are like, yes, of course, like that's the missing piece. Some are like, oh God, like why why would you want to get involved in, in that racket. Um, but I think as, as we launch more of these utility programs across the country, it's only helpful if people actually enroll in them. And so um, we have a number of different touch points we use both through the, uh, through the utility, through our own driver engagement to marketing and through the OEM's own apps to uh, engage the drivers, to get them to enroll and participate in these programs. But the education piece, I think, at the dealership is um, 
still missing. And so I think what we're uh, just starting to scrape at the surface of with uh, a couple of our partners is as we launch a new utility program in a given geography, like let's say in Colorado, um, can we go through their dealer training and education channels to make sure at point of sale, the driver knows, hey, congrats, you live in Colorado. And, and guess what? Um, when you buy this vehicle, it's automatically eligible for this program uh, called you know, Charging Perks, uh, which, is, which is the name for Excel Energy Colorado, uh, the program we, we run with them. And just getting that automatic insight of like, yeah, you could be charging with uh, excess wind power overnight and making an extra, you know, 50, 100, 150 bucks in utility incentives when you drive off the lot today. And it's like, cool. I wasn't sure if that whole renewable energy thing <laughs> was a gimmick or not, but sounds like this is real and I get to earn a few bucks by doing it. Like, great. Like if your dealer is educated on that, um, I think we can. It's, it's not the thousands of dollars off, off the hood of the car that federal incentives are providing, but it's it's the extra nudge and, and I think it helped engage people. Yeah, definitely a good long-term uh, investment kind of payback for going to an electric vehicle. I guess yeah. uh, that's funny you say all that because speaking of another guest we had previously and being the director of partnerships, I'm sure you're familiar with kind of what Chargeway is doing in the dealership space around education for electric vehicles because that does seem like that might be kind of a natural fit obviously they also have to yep. be there but yeah broad, broadly familiar yeah there's definitely a few um players in the space that i think already touch uh dealers more closely than we do and, and certainly interested in uh exploring partnerships on on that side i uh i met uh i, I did meet someone from um nada the national auto mm-hmm. dealers association back in september or so an event and um he you know his his sort of attitude and emotion was like you know, my God, if you if you could bring me any and all solutions that help uh, educate the dealers, help them educate their customers, and also right. reduce the strain that's happening between the OEM and the dealer, um, you know, they're like we're we're all ears right now. There's there's so much um, want and need and frustration um, where everyone's kind of pointing the finger at one another, saying like you need to do more, but there isn't really sort of good lines of communication or, or engagement. So yeah, it seems like there's an untapped need there for, for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting because, uh, I, I think that's been kind of the unifying theme we've seen, uh, just on this podcast in general is education and in very, uh, different formats is really the biggest missing piece or the area that needs the most work. And I think especially on kind of the, uh, customer uh, facing side, but especially in the dealership space around kind of how all these things tie together, why it's important and what kind of makes the the change. And it's interesting since we're talking about the dealership space and we've been talking primarily about electric, fully electric vehicles so far on this episode, I'm just kind of curious if your team has been doing anything around plug-in hybrids, because that seems to become mm-hmm. a renewed interest, especially among dealers where kind of a lower barrier of education might be needed to kind of get yep. someone in or someone that already has a hybrid, they kind of understand the step to it. Is is that something your team has been seeing a lot of uh, interest and kind of a need from the utilities of how to manage those sorts of vehicles as well? Yeah, totally. Um, so our utility programs right now are generally agnostic to PHEV versus full BEVs. So you can, <clears throat> excuse me, you can sign up either way. And uh, the Automotive partners we're working with as well, yeah, range from uh, kind of like the fully electric to to the ones that are more focused on on PHEVs in the interim. Um, so yeah, it's all it's all part of the solution. And I yeah, I'm generally of the personal opinion that it is a good sort of transition option. Um, I think the real the real sort of trick and or danger is that it is so easy when you have a PHEV to not charge right <laughs> um and it's like so on the one hand it's it's kind of like a double-edged sword you, you don't want people to come to this belief like if i don't if i forget to charge i'm you know out of luck the next morning on the other hand if if they're only ever going to remember to charge on like you know a particular day that they're feeling good about uh saving the environment or something and otherwise you're like eh, most of my driving is on gasoline miles anyway like it doesn't it doesn't matter then you sort of miss the point um but it is all in all it's this awesome opportunity where it's like yeah like 
folks, you don't drive more than 30 miles a day. Uh, that's true for, I can pick a random pool of people and that's true for like 90% of people. <laughs> They're going right. to you know, say, no, no, I need, I need to go on a road trip between San Francisco and Los Angeles every day. Um, and with like 350 miles of range, it's like, you know, just tr- plug in, plug off and um, get your 30 to 50 miles of PHEV range uh, charge again, you know, the next day and you'll barely ever drive gasoline miles again. And then once you get used to it, um, why not make the jump? And by the time you do make the jump, I assume ranges will have increased as well. So should should be a nice transition transition option if, again, if we educate well along the way. For sure. With that, I, I'm, that's kind of an interesting thing you bring up with what your technology does, given that it also looks at, obviously, the charging side of it and then the battery size. And what are you seeing as far as, is there kind of a sweet spot or, and maybe this is more of a question on the commercial side with what you do around the charging needs, having kind of a, like once you start getting into like, especially the DC, I, I don't know how much we've grades really now doing with DC fast charging versus AC and level two charging, but it just seems like at one point, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, where is uh, the best return? Is it like batteries need to be so big and then they can do level two charging? Is that, I mean, is that a, a question you're getting from automakers about like use case and where some of that, the data you're seeing, or is that still uh, kind of almost dependent on the user and what their kind of budget is when buying an EV even? Yeah, I'll say. I realize um, that's a lot. I just got yeah, messed there, but. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's a great, uh, line of thinking. And I wouldn't say I have, um, where we would even necessarily has like a specific, uh, view like today, um, especially with the first couple waves of adopters, right. It's like most people, uh, adopting today have access to, uh, a charger at home. That's obviously one of the big challenges as soon as we're going to go into a new, uh, adoption pool of people that don't necessarily have a dedicated charger. Um, so up until now, it's been this like, right, 80% of charging is happening at home. Let's focus on um, that wave of, of consumers. Now, as we get into this much broader world of, of course, people have like multifamily homes, apartment buildings, um, other types of dwellings that may not have access to uh, a garage or a charger. Utilities are very interested um, in solving this because it's an equity question for them, right? Electric utilities have um, this mandate to serve every customer and they can't kind of, um, sure, for pilots, they can do innovative new things with just single family homes and EV drivers. But at the end of the day, they need to make it accessible um, to all drivers. And so this is becoming a very big, your your question is becoming a very big question in the space of how do we make sure this serves everyone um, and that everyone can sort of help benefit the grid, but also benefits from the grid in relatively uh, equitable ways. Um, and I do think for the for the automakers, some of the innovative uh, work we're starting to do with them is um, really building the OEM uh, app, the mobile experience, as a bit of like a concierge service that gives you, the driver, the sort of insights and recommendations uh, you need and want about your charging. I think right now there's this pain a lot of EV drivers feel of like having like 10 apps, right? All the different charging right. networks and maybe it's something from their uh, from their OEM, it's something from the utility, it's something from a third party. Um, I think we pretty strongly believe that OEMs have a right to win there with their own mobile app. And of course, some of those others like the charging networks can be integrated um, in there. And the role that we've grid plays because we have a lot of data um, and insights on how uh, what the car looks like and how the driver is using it for charging, we can start to recommend, hey, like you're charging at home, uh, you can shift to better rates later at night, or hey, you're charging at home, but actually the public network that you have access to is cheaper uh, in the hour during which you tend to come home from work. Uh, maybe you should charge there on your way home and that's how you'll save money. But, you know, again, that's going to be with trade-offs of money versus time versus resources, et cetera. That's just some of the sort of, you know, experimental 
thinking and discussions we're we're starting to have. That's great, and that does seem to be. Uh, it's funny you mention that because that has always been my biggest challenge with charging. <laughs> is just and i feel like i'm a pretty tech savvy person is around just you have to have an app for this system and there just seems to be a lack of foresight around usually where these charges are there is no cellular connection or Mm -hmm. it's very weak and so both the timing out and just having to have an app for everything i think uh trying i i I completely agree with you like if you're going to buy let's say a ford lightning it makes sense for you to have the ford lightning app Uh, and if you can put then the data from multiple charging groups into that one app and kind of augment that where you can awesome, it is less likely and definitely a worse experience to have to have the Ford lightning app and then like 10 to 15 other definitely EV charging apps to just get the system to work to begin with. So yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a big part once again, of just the challenges around education and what people are seeing in that space of kind of running into a lot of friction for not even early adopters, but now as the auto market's growing and you're starting to see more people get into the space, those challenges for kind of more mainstream buyers. Yeah. Uh, And I'll just add that that's another one of the reasons we strive so hard to work um, hand in hand with our automotive partners and our charging partners is that we don't want to be one of that third app or that 17th app. In right. fact, we, we don't have an app at all. Um, we work directly either co-branding experiences with the utilities or co-branding um, or living sort of under the, by working hand in hand with the automaker, or the charging companies is how we make sure there's consistency between what the driver sees in their OEM app versus what they say, see in the head unit of the vehicle and the sort of HMI in, in the car versus maybe their utility uh, website and portal with respect to sort of their, their electric vehicle. I think right now there's so many touch points you could have. And when they show you different information or conflicting controls, like you say, set your charge schedule in one app, but it doesn't port over to, you know, your, your OEM app or, or the interface you have in your vehicle, that's immensely frustrating. And so I think that's one thing we're just avoiding from day one by working directly with the automakers on these integrations and making sure there's a consistent and, and delightful experience for the driver. For sure. And I, I realize we are kind of coming up on the uh, time limit you yeah. have today with us. But uh, before you go, I, I just wanted to kind of, I think, highlight a couple upcoming events that your team has. But uh, first, where and how are kind of, if people are listening to this, the best ways to learn more about WeaveGrid and connect with you? Sure. Well, um, in good news, our lovely new website just launched uh, this morning, uh, starting to get a little uh, perfect timing, a, a little stale after a couple of years since <laughs> the last refresh. And so, yeah, it's definitely a, a good place to start. Um, I think it's the uh, sort of the, the news section, which has a lot of the sort of reports and, and case studies um, uh, to see what we're up to. And then, yeah, there's some uh, great events coming up. It's it's wonderful because you know in our space we're working with distribution utilities. We're working with automotive. Guess what? There's an event called Distribute Tech that is next week in Orlando, where a bunch of our team will be with uh, with our utility clients and friends. And there's an event called Auto Tech that we like going to in in early June, where a lot of this discussion of uh, transitioning uh, or augmenting the software defined vehicles into sort of grid interactive vehicles happens and We'll uh, look to play a more re- leading role this year, but yeah, our um, our website, our, our newsletter, if uh, if you want access to that, um, always happy to spread spread the gospel of of Weave Grid through our various channels. Well, I appreciate that. I know when we were uh, kind of planning discussing this episode, it sounds like you guys will also be at South by Southwest this year. Um, so it definitely seems like you guys are trying to be out there and get the word out about we've creating kind of share what, how, not only how you guys are helping, but like how serious the need is for kind of filling these gaps when it comes to electric vehicle charging and especially the data and technology side, bridging all these together. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're super pumped. I think, uh, South by Southwest is, uh, March 10th. If I, uh, if I remember correctly, our, our, our panel there. So yeah, really bringing, um, you know, some of the work we do is very behind the scenes. It's kind of the the digital infrastructure for the physical infrastructure, which most people don't see or care about, which is totally fine. Um, but yeah, these opportunities like South by Southwest really um, present a nice opportunity to bring that a little bit into the um, 
you know, the public, the public sphere and the, the public dialogue. So people get a sense of, oh, there's some, there's some cool stuff going on uh, behind the scenes to make this uh, revolution a reality. For sure. And I, I think with that, we'll uh, kind of end today's episode, but I just want to say uh, thank you so much for coming on today, Yakov. And it's been really uh, interesting learning more about WeaveGrid. And it's great to see that this technology is out there just because it does. It's great that you guys are kind of the layer between so many of these different technologies that everyone wants to like promote each and each of these technologies do have their strengths in place. But there's definitely a huge opportunity for really making it a lot easier for all these to communicate together and to provide that data to make them more efficient for the end user. So thank you so much for coming on today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. As we wrap up this enlightening conversation with Jakob Bernstein, the Director of Partnerships at Gridweave, we hope you're walking away with a renewed sense of optimism and curiosity about clean transportation and the future of energy, all of which can build a stronger and more resilient electrical grid. Yakov's insights into the evolving landscape of renewable energy and how electric vehicles can better help with this transition, made possible by the innovative efforts at Gridweave, remind us of the impactful changes happening in our world, driven by technology, partnership, and collective action. We want to extend our sincerest thanks to Yakov for joining us today and sharing his expertise and vision. It's conversations like these that fuel our passion for exploring the connections that shape our grid and our future. Before we sign off, we'd love to keep this conversation going and hearing your thoughts. Connect with us on social media, share your takeaways from this episode, and let us know what topics you're eager to hear more about. Your engagement is what makes this community so special and impactful. And remember, if today's episode sparked something in you, consider sharing it with friends, colleagues, or anyone you believe would appreciate the insights we've uncovered. Each share helps us grow and continue to bring you content that inspires, informs, and connects. Thank you for tuning in and charging forward with us. Until next week, this is the Grid Connections Podcast signing off.